Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. In late 2020, the comedian John Mulaney found himself on the receiving end of an intervention. He recounted the whole ordeal in his appearance on Seth Meyers' talk show last year. If you have a chance to watch the interview on YouTube, it's actually pretty funny for multiple reasons. One, because John Mulaney is on the other side of the addiction now, and he's doing much better than he was at the time of the intervention. Two, because he's a comedian, which means he's quite good at cracking jokes, even about his own bad experiences. But three, it's funny because Seth Myers, who's doing the interview with John Mulaney, was actually one of the friends who staged the intervention and was there for it. And, and hearing two people give two different vantage points on an intervention is quite entertaining to watch. But a lot of it, uh, especially due to the fact that John Mulaney and Seth Myers are such good friends, is just very interesting to watch. So apparently there for the intervention was John Mulaney, Seth Meyers, Fred Armisen, and a few other comedians. So it was like half of an SNL cast that was there, and likely just as awkward as some SNL skits are lately. But in John Mulaney's own words, as soon as I opened the door to the apartment and saw all of my friends there, I knew it was an intervention. That's how much of a drug problem I had. But to me, the most fascinating part of the interview actually came at the very end of it all. So after they made as many jokes as they could about the intervention itself, there's this moment that got really, really serious all of a sudden. And Seth Myers, who evidently has known John Mulaney for a while, says to him, John, I love you very much. I'm glad to be in your presence, and I'm glad that you're doing well. And you can tell that they're both really uncomfortable with this part of the interview. But because I have been in similar situations with other people before, I think I know what Seth Meyers was trying to say. I think he was saying that there for a while, he wasn't sure if his friend John Mulaney was going to make it. He saw a trajectory in John's life that if it wasn't stopped, was going to end really, really badly for all of them. Hence the intervention. And the reason I find that really interesting is because I think it reveals a belief that pretty much all of us share as human beings. Pretty much all of us, followers of Jesus or not, understand that there are times where someone's actions and behavior are so destructive to themselves and others that the only rational response as their friend is to insist that they change their behavior. That's what interventions are for, right? And I know sometimes we tend to think that interventions are limited to things like drug or alcohol addiction, but I've heard of people staging intervention-type situations for much less, to confront friends of theirs who are dating horrible people or friends whose spending habits or eating habits have spiraled out of control and plenty of other things that are much less than what we might think of as traditional addictions. But all of these 
All of those types of interactions are expressions of love for a person whose actions are harming themselves and hurting others. And, and most people would agree, I think, that sometimes that is what love has to look like in practice, essentially saving a person from themselves. So for all of our society's talk of you do you and do whatever makes you happy and don't let anybody else tell you how to live, we actually realize at our core that sometimes letting people live however they want to live could be the worst possible thing we could do for them. Sometimes love looks like insisting that a person change. And as we dive into our passage this morning, I, I would just ask that you do your best to keep that framework in mind for what love sometimes looks like. Because as we work through the text, there are likely to be moments where some of us wrestle mightily with what is being said and, and the types of actions that Jesus is prescribing that we take. But at the very heart of everything in this passage is the singular mindset that we just mentioned, that in certain situations, the most loving thing you can possibly do for a person is insist that they change their behavior. So turn with me, if you've got a Bible, to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. If you're new to City Church, last week we jumped into a multiple year study that we've been in through the book of Matthew together. In this section of the book, Jesus sets his focus on relationships, how followers of Jesus interact with and care for each other. Last week, Jesus talked about how we shouldn't cause each other to sin. This week, he's going to talk about what we should do if someone does sin. And to do that, he's going to talk specifically about what many people have called church discipline. Now, I could not care less whether or not you use that term, church discipline, because that's not a term found anywhere in the Bible. Take it or leave it. But church discipline is just the term that some Christians have used to describe addressing sin in another Christian's life. And what Jesus is going to do in this passage is lay out a process for how we can do that while being loving, clear, and even honoring to the other person. And I think what you'll find is that even if this process makes some of us terribly uncomfortable, the logic and intentionality behind it actually make a lot of sense. So let's take a look and see what we can learn from Jesus. We're actually going to start in verse 15, and then we'll eventually circle back around to the beginning of the passage. Verse 15 in Matthew chapter 18 says this, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. So let's stop just a second before we even finish that verse. There are three very important things in what Jesus just said that you must notice before we go any further. Because if you miss these three things, you actually miss the entire point of the passage as a whole. So first, notice the phrase, brother or sister. Brother or sister. So this means this is not a passage about confronting anyone and everyone in the world who sins. Otherwise, you end up on Market Square with a bullhorn and a sandwich board sign, right? This is not about confronting anyone in the world who sins. It's about engaging another follower of Jesus on their sin, and ideally one, one that you have a particularly close relationship with at a personal level. Second, notice the word sins. If your brother or sister sins... Not if they do something you don't like, 
Not if they do something you wish they wouldn't do or something that gets on your nerves. If they sin, meaning if they participate in some type of behavior, probably on a recurring basis, that the scriptures clearly condemn. That's what we're talking about. If they sin, go and point out their fault. And then lastly, notice the word just. The word just. As in, go and tell them their fault just between the two of you. Notice the dignity there given to the person struggling. It it doesn't say go and make sure other people know about the details of their sin. It doesn't say go and talk to other people about that person's sin. It says go and talk to that person alone. Just the two of you should have that initial conversation. So that's the first step in this whole process. Go and talk to the person about the thing that's off in them. Now, I think it's worth pointing out at this point that this step of what people call church discipline, this step happens often in our church, like real often. And there's nothing particularly formal about it in the way that it happens. Like guys in my life group do not email me and say, hi, it's Joe from your life group. I'm just emailing you because I'd like to initiate the first step of church discipline with you. It's usually not how it goes down, hardly ever how it goes down, right? He just waits until there's a moment where it's just me and him and nobody else around, and he says, hey, I've been noticing that lately you've been acting this way, or you've been treating people this way, or you've been talking this way, and that doesn't seem like a great pattern. Can we talk about that? I would love to have a conversation with you about that. That's what's being described in this first step of the whole process. Just us doing what we've always been called to do as Jesus' followers, which is addressing things that we notice in each other that are not consistent with the scriptures. That's our responsibility is belonging to the community of faith. And once you do that, Jesus says, second half of verse 15, look with me there. If they listen to you, you have won them over. If they listen to you and acknowledge their fault, great, you've won them over. You've you've been a great friend to them and you've helped them become a little more like Jesus. Well done. Everybody wins in that scenario. And I'll just add, a majority of the time when this happens, this is exactly the outcome that comes out of it. The the person being confronted goes, oh, thank you for telling me. I, I don't think I had realized that about myself, but you're absolutely right. That's not an okay way for me to act. That's not an okay way for me to treat other people. That's not an okay way for me to speak. And I'm sorry that I did it. Will you help me notice if it happens again? And that's it. That's the goal, is that we would win them over, that they would see their fault and they would own up to it, that they would confess and repent. And if that happens, everybody is better off as a result. That's what we're aiming for. But occasionally, it does not go that way, which is where verse 16 comes in. Take a look with me there. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. All right, so if you've got a Bible translation like mine, which is the NIV, you may notice that the last part of that verse is in quotes. Do you see that? It's in quotes. That's because it is a phrase lifted directly out of the Old Testament. The idea is that another person or two should be there for this second conversation to witness you addressing the issue in the other person. 
Now, having a witness there is a, it serves as a safeguard in at least two directions. So one, it keeps us from lying about the situation. It keeps us from saying, yeah, that person, I went and confronted them on their sin and they did not listen. They refused to listen to me. It keeps us from saying that when we, in fact, did not talk to them about it and they, in fact, or they, in fact, did repent when we brought it up with them. So it keeps us honest. It keeps us accountable to represent the situation accurately. But it also provides accountability for the other person, the person that we're confronting about their sin. It keeps them from saying, when the situation escalates, that no one ever talked to them about the sin in question. They cannot say that in good faith because there was someone else there when the conversation happened. So there's accountability all around in this second step. The second step is that you take one or two others with you to have the same conversation a second time. Then, verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. At this point in the process, you actually inform the gathered people of God about the situation. Now, it's probably worth clarifying here. Most churches back then weren't a couple hundred people big like our church is. They certainly weren't thousands of people big like some churches are. So generally, what they referred to as a church was a lot closer in size and feel to what a lot of us would call a life group. We're talking about 10, 20, maybe 50 people who all had a relatively close relationship with each other. So when Jesus says, tell it to the church, it likely does not mean step up to the mic in front of everybody and spill the details of this person's sin to the whole crowd, people that don't even know them. It means let people know why things have been weird with that person they know lately. Fill people in on why that person isn't around, what is being done about it. You're not putting them on blast, you're not raking them over the coals, but at the same time, one of the worst things that can happen in a situation like this one is for it to feel like it is shrouded in secrecy. Because then people start assuming the worst of the person involved, the worst of the church as a whole, or the leadership of the church, or all of the above. They start assuming the worst of everybody, and all of a sudden, stuff spirals out of control. So Jesus says, bring it out into the open. Tell people what's going on so that nobody has to speculate about it. Then, second half of verse 17 says this, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, no doubt about it, this is probably the most difficult part of the passage for many of us. Jesus just said if a person still refuses to repent, his disciples should treat that person like a pagan or a tax collector. So like someone who doesn't know God or like someone who is actively oppressing the people of God. So essentially, here's what Jesus is saying. You should begin treating that person like they're not a follower of Jesus because for all intents and purposes, they're not. They show no indication of acknowledging the things that they do that grieve God and hurt themselves and harm others, even when you bring that thing to their attention repeatedly and clearly. That is not behavior consistent with someone who claims to follow Jesus. 
So you should treat them in a way that reflects their actions. You don't pretend like everything's fine. You don't pretend like you are on the same page with each other about following Jesus because you're not. Just in case you're still struggling with this, let me try to offer you an analogy. Let's say that you know of a family here in our city where the father of the family is actively, ongoingly cheating on his wife. And let's say everybody in the family knows that it's happening, but they're just pretending that it's not happening. So each evening, they they all sit down at the dinner table as a family, and he just pretends like everything is fine. He, He goes, so what was everybody's favorite part of the day? And everybody have fun at school? What was everybody's, what did everybody do today? I want to hear how everybody's doing. Never apologizes for the affair, never even acknowledges it, never shows any desire to stop it, just operates as if things are completely normal in the family. Does that seem like a healthy way for a family to go about life together? I would say eventually someone in that family has to say, hey, we're not just going to sit around the dinner table and act like everything's fine. We're not going to do that. It's not fine. Your actions are destroying your marriage and they are destroying our family. And it's not loving for us just to pretend that it's not happening. So we're going to address it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to acknowledge it. Okay, with that in mind... Let's remember that the biblical picture of a church is that of a family. The church is a family. It's meant to function like a healthy family. And so it doesn't make sense for a family to allow someone whose actions are hurting themselves and harming others in the family to just keep coming in and sitting down at the dinner table and pretending like everything's okay, pretending like everything's normal. That is actually a deeply dysfunctional way to go about life together as a church. It's unloving to the person in sin, and it's unloving to anyone who is being affected by their sin. So again, because we love each other, we don't allow sin to destroy each other and ravage the community that we've built. We address it, even if it takes aggressive measures, even if it makes us uncomfortable, even if it requires awkward conversations, we address it. We do it because that is what love looks like at times. Because sometimes the most loving thing we can do is insist that a person change their behavior. Does that at least make sense? I'm not saying do we like it. I'm saying does it at least make sense to us? Okay. If you thought that sounded intense, brace yourself for the next three verses. Verse 18, here's what it says. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Okay, so this part has some odd language to us, especially that bit about binding and loosing in verse 18. So hang with me for a second while I unpack it, and then we're going to circle back around. We're going to talk a little bit about some lingering questions that we might have about all of this. But first, let's figure out what these verses mean. In verse 18, Jesus references these ideas of binding and loosing. 
So in first century Judaism, to bind meant to require something of someone, and to loose meant to release someone from something. So what Jesus is trying to say here is that when we collectively, as the people of God, tell someone that they must repent of their sin, he is saying that in that moment, we are acting with the authority of heaven, with the the power of God himself in that moment. And when we collectively tell someone that they are forgiven or they are released of their sin after they confess and repent of it, we are also in that scenario acting with the authority of God himself. What we bind on earth is bound in heaven. What we loose on earth is loosed in heaven. And then, just to drive that point home, Jesus says essentially the same thing, but he phrases it two other ways. So first, he says, if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them. That's another way of saying that God gives a significant amount of authority to his followers, especially when they agree about something that needs to be done about another follower of Jesus' sin, which could also be worded, verse 20, where two or three gather in my name, there I am among them. God is saying that his very spirit is present with us when we go through processes like this one. This is all very significant, very powerful in the eyes of God. We are acting with the authority of God himself in these moments. Now, That does mean I regret to inform some of us that the two or more gathered in my name passage actually is not referring to prayer meetings. I'm sorry to burst that bubble. It's not that God isn't present at your prayer meetings. He absolutely is. That's just not what this passage means. Does that make sense? Which is kind of relieving to me because when I heard that verse quoted that way growing up, it was like, well, when two or more are gathered, God is with us. And it was like for a prayer meeting or a worship gathering, I was like, wait, so is God not there when it's just me? I don't, that feels very disconcerting to me. So that's just not what this verse means. It's not that God isn't present in our prayer meetings or our worship gatherings. It's just that that's not what Jesus is saying here. So All of that unpacked, I want everybody to take a deep breath with me. Didn't that feel nice? I didn't let you finish. I'm sorry. Take another deep breath. Okay. So we just covered a lot very quickly. What I want to do before we're done with all of this is twofold. I want to address a couple lingering questions that we might have in response to this whole process laid out. And then I want to take us back full circle to the beginning of our passage, the verses that we skipped over at the beginning. But first, I want to address two questions. I'm doing this because I don't think what we just read is actually that complicated in and of itself, right? It's relatively simple to follow. That doesn't mean we want to follow it or we like the process, but it's relatively simple to follow the logistics of it. I want to talk about two questions we might have in response to all of this. Question number one, isn't it cruel to exclude someone based on their behavior? Isn't it cruel to exclude someone based on their behavior? So specifically, when Jesus says, if they don't repent, treat them as a pagan or a tax collector, 
Many people feel like that sounds like a cruel response. And truth be told, it certainly can be, but it isn't necessarily. Here's why I say that. Every group that exists in the world excludes somebody. Every group. That's just the definition of having a group. So let me try to illustrate it to you. Uh, if I am in a group called the Tennessee Pastors Group, that excludes anyone who's not in Tennessee, and it excludes anyone who's not a pastor. If there's a group called the Bicycle Riders Group, who does that exclude? People that don't ride bicycles, right? Like unicycle enthusiasts had to create their own group just over the difference over one wheel. Like that's crazy, right? That's a very exclusive group. Um, there is an, a student organization on UT's campus right now called the Council on Diversity and Inclusion. Now it seems like if there's any group in the world that would be fully inclusive of everybody, it would be a group called the Council on Diversity and Inclusion. That's gotta be a perfectly inclusive group, right? But I'd be willing to bet that if you walk into that group's meeting one day and you say, guys, here's the thing. I actually don't think diversity and inclusion is all that big of a deal. I think we should exclude some people. Do you know who that group is going to exclude? <laughs> you, <laughs> right? So even the most inclusive groups are exclusive of somebody. That's just the definition of the group. Otherwise, you don't have a group. You just have the human population. And then you exclude aliens. So look at that. Literally every group is exclusive. I'm, I'm making a ridiculous point. I shouldn't have gone this far into it, but I did. So uh, every group is exclusive of somebody. So yes, the community of Jesus, the church of Jesus Christ, is sometimes exclusive of certain people. But here's the thing, I would submit to you that the community of Jesus is the most inclusive, exclusive group that there is. Because the community of Jesus includes people from every nation, every tribe, every ethnicity, every tongue, every income level, every background, every sexual orientation, you go on down the list. It includes people that are great at following Jesus, and it includes people that, to be honest, kind of suck at it sometimes. The church of Jesus Christ will include anyone and everyone. The only qualifier to be in the group is that you repent. The only qualifier is that you repent, that you would be willing to own up to your sin, that you would be willing to acknowledge the things in you that are inconsistent with the teachings of the scriptures, and that you would confess that and turn from that. That's the only qualifier. So listen, yes, anyone who shows a pattern of not doing that is excluded from the community of Jesus. But if you ask me, that's a pretty wide net. The community of Jesus is the most inclusive group that exists because the only qualifier is that you repent. That's the first question. Second question you might have, couldn't this process be abused? Couldn't this process that Jesus lays out in Matthew 18, couldn't it be abused and, and manipulated so especially in that binding and loosing language that Jesus uses, right? Like that feels inherently dangerous to some of us. 
Even if this process is fine in and of itself, couldn't people misuse it and, and, and use it in a way that, that abuses and manipulates other people? Answer, absolutely. Absolutely it could be misused. It, it has been at times. People have misused passages like this one in the Bible to be unreasonably cruel to other people in the name of Jesus. It has been used to keep people in power at churches that should not be in power. It's been used to keep people out of churches that deserve to be there. It's been used to keep people in the church from speaking out when someone needed to speak out. And I absolutely hate that, especially as a pastor. It grieves me to my core to know that people would sometimes manipulate the scriptures in that way to hurt people. But that being said, I would argue that just because something can be abused doesn't mean the process itself is wrong. Plenty of things are good in their intention and bad when they're abused. So uh, fatherhood, the, just the idea of being a father is sometimes abused by people to horrendous ends. That doesn't mean we don't need fathers in the world. Friendships are often abused to hurt people. That, that doesn't mean that we don't need friendships with people. None of those abuses mean that the ideas themselves are bad. They just mean that we need to make sure we're approaching them in healthier ways. So I, I think the question that we should all be asking is how do we do that? How do we approach processes like these laid out by Jesus in healthy sorts of ways? How do we go about it in ways that are helpful and not harmful? I think that's the question we should all be asking. Not just this morning, but any time that we enter into these types of conversations with others in the church, how do we approach this in a healthy way? To answer that, I want us to circle back to the very beginning of our passage in verse 12, because there, Jesus is going to give us a parable to help us understand not just the process, but the heart behind the process. So take a look back with me, Matthew 18, if you still got your Bibles open. Matthew 18, starting in verse 12. Here's what it says. What do you think? In other words, Jesus says, try thinking about it this way. If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 up on the hills and go and look for the one that wandered off? Answer, yes. Of course he would do that. Right? He's in charge of the sheep and he cares for his flock. Of course, he would go find the one sheep that wanders off. Verse 13, and if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. Verse 14, here's the point. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. So if you'll remember back to last Sunday, Jesus started to use this term, little ones, as a metaphor that refers to all followers of Jesus. So what Jesus just did here in Matthew 18 is that he told a story that illustrates the care and attention and affection that God the Father has for all of his children. 
And the story is about a sheep who wanders off and then a shepherd who goes and finds it. And something about this story that Jesus tells at the beginning of the passage is meant to help us understand the purpose behind this whole process of engaging and confronting other followers of Jesus on their sin. Now, I, for one, find this passage to be a particularly helpful metaphor for Jesus to use. But just think about it. Does a sheep who wanders away from the fold Does that sheep do that maliciously out of an intentional effort to hurt the other sheep? No. Do do they wander off because they really hate the shepherd and they want to cause him emotional turmoil? No. They're just wandering off. They see something that to them looks interesting or intriguing or compelling somewhere away from the flock, and they just start wandering towards it without much thought at all. But at the same time, unbeknownst to them, there are a world of dangers awaiting. Sheep are notoriously vulnerable to predators. They're very easy prey. So so a sheep who is wandering off is doing something that seems fine to them in the moment, but actually isn't fine at all. And and isn't that how a lot of sin works, if we're honest? Sometimes we do things that we know is sin, right? Sometimes we know something is wrong and then we still do it. And yet at other times, we just start wondering, drifting, walking away from where God intended us to be. But even though that doesn't seem harmful to me in the moment, it still absolutely could be. In the words of Proverbs, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way to death. Any of us could find ourselves in a situation like this one. Any one of us. But Jesus' point in telling the story is that God the Father would never in a million years just be apathetic to a person in a situation like that. He would never just allow someone he knew and loved to just wander off and not go care for them. That's not who the Father is. Rather, he would leave the 99, he would go and find the one. Now, Even though Jesus means this as a metaphor, this situation that he's describing would not have been hypothetical at all to the people listening to him tell the story at the time. Shepherds and sheep were basically everywhere in Jesus' day, and everybody he was talking to would have been familiar with the situation he was describing. When a sheep would wander off from the flock, it would generally trek through the woods and, and the mud and and the dirt for miles. It, it, it would, its fur would be filthy and often ripped to shreds from walking through thorns and briars and tree branches on its way. It, if it was gone very long at all because it was such vulnerable prey, it wasn't uncommon for sheep to be found with, with cuts and open wounds on its body, bleeding, sometimes even m- missing or having broken limbs from where a predator had almost captured it and torn it apart. Sometimes the sheep couldn't find its way back to the fold, even if it wanted to, because it had been maimed so badly that it couldn't walk or move. So in most scenarios, it's not like the shepherd would just go and find the sheep wherever it was and just kind of point it back to the flock. That's not what would happen. Usually the situation was way more dire than that. 
More often, what would happen is that the shepherd would find the sheep, dirtied, mauled, bloodied, and half destroyed from its journey. So the shepherd would have to pick the sheep up and throw it over his shoulders. And he would carry it, sometimes miles, back to the flock. And by the time the shepherd got back to the flock, he would have the mud and the dirt and the blood of the sheep running down his shoulders and all over his clothing. He would get the sheep into the pen and he would lay it down tenderly in the middle of the pen and he would nurse it back to health over days or weeks or months or even years. That is what a good shepherd did for the sheep. Now, with that in mind, I want you to take a look at what Jesus says about himself in John chapter 10. We'll put this up on the screen. Here's what Jesus says there. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I, Jesus, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. See, that story in Matthew, Matthew 18, it isn't just about what a good shepherd would do. It's a story about what Jesus did. It's a story about God the Father sending his son to be the good shepherd for each of us. Do you see it? We were the sheep that wandered off. We were the ones who wandered straight into behavior that would harm others and hurt ourselves. Our actions put us outside the fold and the care of the Father. But then Jesus left the 99 to come after us. He was unwilling that any one of us should perish. He was unwilling to let our sin and our wandering be the end of us. But instead, he came after us at great cost to himself. He found us in the dirt and the mud and the filth of our own sin. He saw us destroyed and bruised and broken from the brutality of our wandering. And he picked us up and he put us on his shoulders and he brought us back to the fold where we belonged. This is what he accomplished for us, for you and for me in his death and resurrection. And please listen to me on this. When he found you, the look on his face was not disappointment. It wasn't anger. It wasn't, I told you so. I told you this would happen. According to Matthew, the story about the shepherd, according to Matthew, the look on his face when he found you was rejoicing. Rejoicing because he had found the sheep that he lost. Rejoicing because he had found the sheep that he loved, that he wanted, that he cherished, that he set his affections on before the foundations of the world. Do you understand that he sees you that way? Do you see him that way? Because that is the Jesus that we read about in the Bible. That's the good shepherd who is unwilling that any of his sheep should perish. 
That is the shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. That is the message of the gospel. That's what it's all about. So here's the thing. Until you realize that about how God sees you, until you internalize that in your soul, maybe just hold off on confronting other followers of Jesus. Because you don't yet have the heart of the shepherd in you. You don't quite get what the process in Matthew 18 was actually intended to produce. You don't quite understand its objective yet. But when you do understand that, when you see yourself the way God sees you, when you, when you understand the links that the good shepherd went to to find us, when you get that, all of a sudden you're really well equipped to walk into a process like this with somebody else because you've got the heart of the shepherd. You understand what it means to care for the sheep. You understand what it means to be unwilling that one of them should perish. All of a sudden, it makes a ton of sense as to why you would go after the one who wandered off and that you would do so even at great cost to yourself or to the relationship itself because you were the one who wandered off. You were the one who would still be lost if it wasn't for the good shepherd finding you, carrying you on his shoulders to where you belong. When you understand that, you will be ready even to carry someone else on your shoulders if that's what it takes to get them to the message of the gospel again. So as we transition into a time of response, I just want to ask you to consider two things with me. Two questions I want to ask you to think on. First, do you understand the depths of what Jesus did for you? Do you understand the depths of what Jesus did for you? Do you understand that you were the lost sheep and that he is the good shepherd and that he came after you to find you because he loved you and because he was unwilling that you would perish? Do you get that? Do you understand that? Have you internalized that on some level? Second question if you do understand that, if you do grasp that, second, is that reflected in your posture towards others? Is that reflected in your posture towards others? So maybe for you, um, you don't spend very much time engaging other followers of Jesus on their sin because to be honest, you don't think sin is really that bad. Like, who am I to judge them? Who am I to say that something they're doing is wrong? Like, that's not, that's not my role. Like, it's kind of just, you know, everybody has their own journey. Maybe you're not inclined to engage people on what you clearly see as sin because you don't think sin is all that bad. But I would remind you, Jesus himself says in the Gospel of John, that's not the posture of a good shepherd. That's the posture of, in his words, a hired hand who doesn't care for the sheep, who lets the sheep be attacked and mauled, who lets the sheep be harmed. That's the posture of someone who doesn't care about the sheep at the end of the day. So I would just ask, are you hesitant for that reason? 
And do you maybe not understand the nature and the seriousness of sin and what sin sometimes requires us to enter into? Or maybe for you, you're on the other end of the spectrum. Maybe you're here this morning and you're actually very comfortable confronting other people on their sin. Maybe a little bit too comfortable, if we were honest. A little bit too comfortable confronting people on their sin. You're not doing it with the tender posture of a good shepherd. You're not doing it with the intention of rejoicing and finding a lost sheep. You're doing it self-righteously, arrogantly, condescendingly, like someone who doesn't understand that they're only here because Jesus tracked them down when they were lost. And in that case, I would just point you back to the first question. Do you understand what Jesus did for you? Do you understand the links that he went to to bring you back to his care, to his fold, to his flock? So maybe if that's you, you need to just take a moment and bask and enjoy the reality of what Jesus accomplished for you through the cross and resurrection. So whatever needs to happen this morning, wherever you're at, on the spectrum, wherever your current journey has you, I trust that the Spirit will move and work and convict and shape us into who Jesus, the Good Shepherd, would have us be. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you, we rejoice that uh, that you were unwilling that any one of us should perish. That you were not content to let us wander away. That you weren't okay with the damage that sin caused. But that instead you left the 99, you came after us. You tracked us down. You found us, and then you rejoiced in finding us. So God, we just want to ask that you would, by your Spirit's power, that you would just impart that posture to us. that you would, you would give us the ability not to ignore sin and minimize sin. But God, also that you would keep us from confronting others without the heart of the shepherd. God, we, we just so easily, so quickly forget who you are and what you're capable of and what you've done for us in the cross. And God, we so easily reflect attitudes and postures and dispositions that contradict who you are and contradict your heart for people. And so God, we confess that, we're, that we forget very easily and we need you to remind us. And so, God, we ask that you would send your spirit 
who you tell us exist to set our attention and our gaze and our focus on Jesus. And that through that, you would help us take on the posture and the humility of a shepherd. Someone who cares for the sheep and someone who is unwilling that one of those sheep should perish. So God, we ask for your help. We ask for your guidance. We ask for you to just continually point us to that reality. And through that, would we become a place where sinners are safe, but sin is never safe. God, that's what we want. We cannot partake in this journey of becoming like you by ourselves as an individual. We need a community of people that know us and know you to challenge us and to speak life into us and to chase us down when we're wondering. And so God, would you make this, would you make this group of people more and more every day into that type of community where we can all become more and more like you? every day that we follow you. That's what we want. We know that's what you want. And so we just ask that your spirit would accomplish, accomplish all that in us beginning now. Would we be open to it? It's in your name we pray. Amen.